This is Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast, episode number 147. Today, our special guest is Joel Brown. Joel is a respiratory therapist, a community and national leader, and an entrepreneur. He's a man after our own heart. Don't miss this one. Welcome back to Healthcare's Missing Logic Podcast. This is the only podcast that shows you how to leverage polarity intelligence, an essential competency for healthcare leaders and the missing logic in healthcare, so you can create healthy healing organizations and become a thriving, resilient, and unstoppable healthcare leader. We are your hosts, Tracy Christofferson and Michelle Troset. We've been best friends and colleagues for over 30 years. And during that time, we coached healthcare leaders across North America around how to create healthy healing organizations. Today, we coach healthcare leaders and leadership teams to live thriving, resilient, and balanced lives, combat burnout, and create the best places to give and receive care. This podcast is for the unsung hero of healthcare, the healthcare leader. We want you to know we see you and we'll be here for you each week. In this podcast, we're going to challenge healthcare's industry norms, flip limiting beliefs, and share proven strategies so you can be your best self at working at home, live and lead intentionally, and experience well-being and joy. We are glad you are here and look forward to sharing the journey with you. If you aren't totally convinced this podcast is for you, just listen to a few episodes and convince yourself. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. And I'm here today with my best friend and respiratory therapist psychic, Tracy Christofferson. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Welcome back to another incredible episode here on Healthcare's Missing Logic podcast. We're at your remote, not it, not together. We're doing the vibes from across the country. That's right. <laughs> so... That's right. That's why things look a little different if you're watching us on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) But we had a really wonderful episode today and kind of warmed my heart to have another respiratory therapist on the podcast with us today. It was really a great, great, great interview. Yeah, it really was. And as a nurse, I have always loved respiratory therapists. And uh, Joel is just phenomenal. And you're going to love his story. Um, There's a lot of different elements to his story that we're eager to share with you today. Yeah, he's got lots of stories. (laughs) Yeah, he does. (laughs) Lots of stories and lots of wisdom and... um, yeah, just lots of insights that I think you'll you'll learn from no matter what profession you're in. Just so right. happens that he's a respiratory therapist. So near and dear to our hearts. Yes. So yeah. I'm going to introduce you to Joel and then we'll have you listen to this incredible interview. So Joel Brown is the CEO and founder of Arrived Leadership, LLC. His career has a proven track record of developing high potential leaders and creating high performing teams and functions. He's recognized internationally for his clinical and leadership lectures, research, and publications. After 30 years of healthcare and military experience, He was inspired to create a coaching, development, and consulting organization focused on a servant leadership philosophy. Before starting Arrived Leadership, he served as the Vice President of Operations for the Medical Group for the Christiana Care Health System. 
Before that, he served as a senior director of patient care at Nemours, and he received a baccalaureate degree in biology and respiratory care from Millersville University, a master of science in management from Wilmington University, and his Lean Six Sigma certification from the University of Delaware. Wow, Joel. (laughs) (laughs) Currently... Joel is the president of the executive board of, for Delaware Guidance Services, vice president of the board for Leadership Delaware Incorporated, chair-elect for the leadership and management section of the American Association of Respiratory Care, and a member of Delaware State Society of Respiratory Care. In addition, he is actively involved in a scholarship fund that he and his wife developed for underrepresented young adults attending college. Joel is a fellow for the American Association of Respiratory Care and was previously awarded the DSRC's Senator Blevins Award. He is the former chair of the Delaware Department of Professional Regulations, Respiratory Care Practice Council, and former advisory board member for several state and community colleges in their respiratory care programs. In addition to his civilian accomplishments, he served and was honorably discharged from the United States Army Reserves as a medic. Quite the leader, Joel is, and you're going to love this interview with him. So without further ado, here's our interview with Joel. Well, Joel, you just have no idea how excited we are to have a respiratory therapist on our podcast. (laughs) Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. I'm a big fan of the podcast and didn't realize I was the, the, the first respiratory Therapist on? Other than me, other than Tracy. <laughs> I've been holding it up for a while here, right? So I'm just happy to have one of my peeps on with me. Yes. <laughs> you, 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 you have no idea, Joel, how excited this she is for yeah, this. I'm very excited. It's super awesome. excited. Yeah. So why don't we just start with you kind of giving our listeners a scoop on your journey into respiratory therapy? Oh, wow. So, uh, yes, I'll start off first. I'm Joel Brown. I'm the uh, CEO and founder of Arrive Leadership. Um, I, right now, I provide executive coaching. Um, I do healthcare consulting and the lecture series speaking engagements. But respiratory care, first love, but was not my first uh, role within healthcare. Uh, I started off as in, um, in the military as a medic and actually never even knew what a respiratory therapist was until I went into the Army. Um, once I went to the army, uh, this was during desert storm time, 1990. Um, and for those trying to figure out my age, I was two years old at that moment at 90, but, um, <laughs> I was in the <laughs> army and they were trying to get people to go full time. And so they were showing them other fields that, uh, they could offer within the army through training. And they, they told me about this thing called respiratory therapy. I was like, man, I want to, let me give that a try. That sounds kind of cool. And I had the best person show me around and he was super engaged, showed me everything. And I was, I was bit by the bug from that moment on. (laughs) The the thing was, is I decided that instead of going full time in the army, which is what that would have required, I was a reservist at the time, I decided to do it on my own. And from there, I mean, that was, uh, from that point, I graduated was eight years, eight years of working. You know, I worked the two jobs and went to school full time. I was really dedicated to it. And I've loved the field ever since. Do not regret a moment of it. And that's why I'm still actively involved. 
Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. What that's a great awesome. story. Yeah. I, I love hearing how people get introduced to respiratory therapy because it's not something like you grow up wanting to do, you know, yeah. like it's yeah. not, you know, like yeah. nurses. Oh, I always knew I wanted to be a nurse. Yeah. It's very hard to find somebody who says, I always yeah. knew I wanted to be a respiratory therapist. Yeah. I've, I haven't bumped into too many five-year-olds where I said, Hey, what do you want to be? And they go, I'm a respiratory therapist. Like, yeah, that's so I, funny. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So we all do so, have, we all have like a unique story behind how we got there. And then, you know, yeah, whether it's through yeah. family, through a connection, through me, through the military, someone introducing me something that to me was unique. And I felt like add a lot of value, not only to our patients, but to how I felt as a, someone who loves to take care of people and, and yeah. loves to see people do better. So, yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. Well, I got exposed to it up close and personal when a very, very dear friend of mine was in a terrible car accident. Okay. It was intubated on a ventilator for months, comatose. Like so, I watched day after day how they cared for her, and that's how I got introduced yeah. to it. So, so Actually, everybody the, has a different yeah, story. The one part I left out in that story, which I think was the part that really hit me the most, is when this, you know, it was one of the sergeants. Um, I don't have permission to put his name out there, so I won't do that. But um, but it, he knows who he is. Uh, but uh, he. I'd never forget, we were in a burn unit at the Brook Army Medical Center, and there was a trach patient there, and she was struggling. And they were like, go get him, because he had the best connection with this patient. So anytime when she would have difficulty or didn't want to, like, you know, comply, they would go get him. And here is this field of this guy's in a field I'd never heard of, and he has the best connection with this patient. And it was because he had been with her since the beginning. From IC, from when she first came to the ICU yeah. to rehab, he had constantly taken care of her. And I was like, wow, that's really unique that he followed her through the continuum of care. And uh, that, that was part of that connection. That's awesome. Well, yeah. as a critical yeah. care nurse, um, didn't take me long to realize that respiratory therapists were my besties. <laughs> you know, a <laughs> lot of collaboration yeah. at the bedside. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, um, Joel, as you know, we've been really working with healthcare leaders um, to combat burnout since the beginning of COVID-19. And we know how critical respiratory therapists have been, you know, in this, this whole pandemic, right? And just the collaboration that's occurred and their expertise that they've brought um, to the patients and to their other team members. And so we just wondered, what have you learned or seen regarding burnout in respiratory therapy? Because yeah. it's really rampant. We hear a lot about it when it comes to nurses and physicians, but just kind of what's your take on that for respiratory therapy? It's interesting. I think the one thing that I definitely was able to learn through this is that so as a respiratory therapist, you may like, so for example, you know, Michelle, you were saying you're an ICU nurse, right? So there may be one respiratory therapist in that space. They could have eight ventilators, patient die. Yeah. And the expectation for us is within 15 minutes to go right back to work because we have seven other ventilated patients to manage. And that patient codes and the expectation is to go right to it. So I think that um, because of that, almost resilience, it was part of our job. It, it's been, it has been underestimated through COVID, like that respiratory therapist struggle. I'll, t I'll tell you a quick story which happened to me that leans to the, the, the expectation of resilience, even though it's, it may not be real. It may be just kind of subdued, you know, perceived and you're just you know, pushing down those emotions. I remember I had a very sick patient. I started off in pediatrics and it was a, it just the story connected to me 
and the patient passed. There was a dad. The kid was my age. The dad was my age. It was a little girl, very accidental situation. And the patient died. We had to take the patient for harvesting for organ donors. So you have to take the family in the OR to pull the tube. And we came back and one of my supervisors said, all right, go to the bathroom, get yourself together. We got to get back to work. Right. And, and I remember being young, I was, you know, new therapist. I went in the bathroom. I didn't know why I was in the bathroom, but I went because I was told I was ex-military guy. I followed the instruction <laughs> and I came back out and I was still disturbed. Right. And, but the perception was that that's the way we need to do things. So what I think we've learned during COVID, right. Cause there are things that happen initially and then, you know, it might be a while before you have another, it's this long drawn out repeat of the same thing. And so what we've learned is just that respiratory therapists not only need the support, but probably need it more than, than many others um, because of how many patients we take care of. And in addition to that, because of how ma- this disease impacted the lungs. So we saw a lot of them. Um, so I think that's important. And then the other part, it, it identified a gap, a gap for leadership, a gap for organizations like how much training did we receive here i'll put it in mind how much training did i receive about how to manage resilience uh in my undergrad when i received my bachelor's in biology and respiratory therapy zero how much did i even receive in my master's degree part of one class and that was more about how to deal with me versus how to deal with staff so i think we've identified those gaps and realized that we need to you know educate not only our managers and our supervisors and our people leaders but also educate staff of when to i have a lecture called to when to throw in the towel um mm-hmm. and, and taking that off as being a negative thing right you see throwing the towel you see the guy who's boxing and they throw in the towel because he's getting beat up but sometimes throwing in the towel is saying hey that's enough for now we have some things to work on and guess what? We're coming back and we're going to fight you again. So I always use the Rocky example, you know, when they screamed mm-hmm. in to throw in the towel because um, he came back and he, actually in the first one, most people, people don't realize he did not win the first one. It was after right. he came, it was right. the next movie um, that he won. So like being comfortable with throwing in the towel, not just for ourselves, but also for each other. Yeah. Oh, I think that's such a huge point. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and yet you feel, um, you know, there's just a lot of, well, when it, if it comes to burnout or experiencing a lot of, there's a lot of stigma, right? If you throw in the towel, right? That you're not strong enough, that yeah. you can't handle it. But I think it's really about recognizing there are times where it's essential, right? For exactly. your own mental health and well-being to say, I can't take any more. Yeah. And then for our leadership teams to figure out, how can we support this? So people have that as an option, right? That yes. we build it in. Yeah. Yeah. It's so, so, you know, it, it's funny because as you said that, it was, it reminded me that I'm, I'm thinking of changing that title is when to tap out because tapping out. I, so I have a background in, in uh, martial arts. And so when you're doing like, you know, any kind of work on the ground, right? I know that if someone has my arm at a certain angle, I could be hurt. So I tap out, right? Because that comes from mm-hmm. one is someone mm-hmm. witnessing you being beat, throwing a towel, right? The other is I am aware that I'm at the point where I could be hurt. So I'm going to tap out so I can, so we can reset and I can come back and try it again and then maybe do it a little different. <laughs> and, yeah. But yeah, it's the recognition, the self-recognition 
on top of that. So I, I actually thought of changing the title of that lecture. Mm-hmm. And now after mm-hmm. just you know saying that, I, I'm pretty sure I will. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, and as somebody who's served, right, like I think a lot of times when we think about the pandemic and about the impact on the individuals, they weren't prepared. Yeah. Right. It's not like when you go into service and you're prepared for battle, you're prepared for what you're going to see. You're prepared in a lot of different ways, mentally, emotionally, physically, right, to to take to deal with the stress and strain and healthcare clinicians. Yeah, we're not. Right. So are there is there any insights that you have in regards to, you know, what a respiratory therapist need now, like in addition to knowing they can tap out? And is there any other you know, education, any other kinds of supports that would be really, really important. Yeah. One thing that the pandemic has kind of forced many organizations to accept is the need for respiratory therapy, therapist driven protocols, right? When you have this large volume of, when you only have your normal census, even if your normal census is high, then it could be very physician driven care. But when you're at the point where you're at the end, and I can tell you, my last role was the vice president of acute medicine for the medical group. So I covered the hospitalists, the ICU physicians, radiologists, pathologists. I covered those groups. And we were thin with numbers of physicians. And if you can get your therapist-driven protocols written up and get them together, number one, that relieves a lot of the work from the physician. Number two, it relieves a whole lot of the work of the therapist trying to chase someone down in a critical mm-hmm. situation just to get an order on something that they know is the right thing to do. And then the last thing, it helps decrease workload. If I'm able to move yeah. patients and get them to where they need to be faster, that means I'm not providing care that isn't going to have a direct impact on my patients. So from a leadership standpoint, right? Leaders have to pause and go, okay, all those barriers that were perceived barriers for not having therapist-driven protocols, we got to just get rid of those. The excuses because so-and-so doesn't want to do it or because this administrator doesn't uh, agree with it. It's not only became a safety issue, it became a financial issue. Um, Equipment wasn't available, right? So if we're running out of a a certain device and... I could have moved that patient off of it for a protocol. Now we're trying to figure out algorithms to get other equipment in because they're sitting on it. So I think the folks that had therapist-driven protocols were probably slightly more prepared than folks that Mm -hmm. did not. Yeah. Well, and the protocols really just enable you to live to your fullest scope of practice. Yes. Right. And to make the decisions for patient care that are in alignment with your license, alignment with your scope. Um, And to do that... And, you know, with, with guidance, you know, because there are clearly written guides as to how you can act within those just for our listeners that may not be familiar. Um, and I, and so, yeah, when you have those things in place, then you can just act and you yeah. can just do what you need to do and you don't get bogged down to your point, right? Which with helps trying to yeah. work through the red tape and, yeah. you know, yeah. And, and it helps when you start talking about resilience, right? The one of the ways to persevere is when you have full pride in what you're doing, right? If I feel like I'm really, I'm here, I'm fully able to do everything that I was trained to do. I feel valued. That's, that's Mm -hmm. one of them. I mean, there's many tools that are needed, but that's one of them. You give someone who's unhappy with what they're doing, and then you give them a lot of it at a high stress level. Yeah. It's hard to, hard to persevere through that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That's a great point. What about the leaders? 
Yeah. Joel, what, what have you noticed about the lead? You know, cause what we knew early on was that, you know, there was a lot of support for clinicians and all clinicians and rightfully so, but what we saw, there wasn't a lot for the leaders. And that's why we stepped in to offer what we've been offering is to really support the leaders. But so Joel, from your perspective, what have you noticed with the leaders and respiratory care yeah. and the impact of COVID and the pandemic on them? Yeah. You know, what's unique about respiratory, right? So when you're thinking about nursing, right? And you think about a hospital, especially the size of the one I was working for, we had, you know, a thousand bed hospital, one, two, two, one, two fifty. And the other was one fifty. Well, it within there, there's probably about 50, 60 nurse managers, right? There is one director of respiratory, two managers, right? So I think, well, what we've learned in respiratory is how the how much more dependent we had to become with our nursing colleagues, number one, and other respiratory managers within the organization. Because when you're in those stressful situations and you're dealing with something that you've not been exposed to, having someone that can say, hey, this is what I've done is important, Mm -hmm. right? So the siloing that that can occur, um, and especially in the field of respiratory care, um, has to come down. We've, we've learned and, and, and actually a lot of the progress we had has been from cl- collaborating with other departments. Right. And I mean, I, here I am at the, you know, I've actually was the director in the beginning of the, um, pandemic. And then I was a vice president of, of, you know, the medical group in the other, and both of them, I found myself still utilizing information and learning from what respiratory is doing, nursing's doing and, and, and vice versa. So the one thing that is that silo and that loneliness that a respiratory manager could feel. Um, I remember, you know, working at another organization, which a much smaller hospital, and there was one respiratory manager. So they didn't have a lot of resources that they could reach out to to get other respiratory specific um, information. So this is where your national organizations come in and help out a lot. The, the other thing is, Right now, what they were really doing with is staffing. I think everyone's heard this, right? Yeah. The the impact yeah. of COVID has staffing wise for respiratory therapists. I mean, number one, you have this volume going way up, where you need more RTs, and you have people who are burnt out and resigning, and or going to travel jobs. And so, I think the travel industry in the respiratory care field has never been lo- that large. But now it is, and we're going to have to learn how to adapt to that. Um, I, I think if we sit here and think that, oh, everyone's going to come back to work full time, that might be a little naive. So I think that a lot of people will, but not all. I think that that world has, you know, ha- is going to be part of our new reality, and we're going to have to figure out how to, to, to work with it and along with it as we go forward. Of course, you know, I'm a little old school, so my, my heart is to have the employee work for me. But the reality of it is that that might not be what, you know, we will see in the future. So we have to figure out how to adapt to that. So there's been so many gaps that are available, but I think even, you know, as tragic as the COVID has been, I think there's a lot of opportunities for us to learn and grow from the experience here. And I, I use this scenario, you know, back in the day, you, you know, and we still do, right? You had code blues. We would go to Code Blues, and each time there was a tr- something that tr- tragic to happen, we would sit there and we would debrief and we'd learn something from it. And one of the things we learned was that, you know what, not every one of these um, are unpreventable. And that's when RRTs came, you know, rapid response teams, right? Yeah. So I think we've had our Code Blue. 
Now let's figure out what the rapid response team part of it is. How do we make sure that we prevent them more than wait until they happen? Right. That's yeah. a great, that's, that's a great point. And I, I agree yeah. with you. I think, I think there's a big shift towards traveling and there's uh, obvious benefits to that, right? Financial. And, but I think also we'll see another, like, I agree with you. I think we'll see a shift. Some of those will come back because they'll long for the connection, for the belonging to an organization, to the things that being a part of an organization gives you. Yeah. Right. And uh, so I think there'll be a, I think it'll balance out over time, uh, but you're right. It's, it's prevalent across the professions when it comes to staffing and the challenges and the changes that have occurred because of, of COVID. Yeah. and that's one of the big polarities that we teach about is recruitment and retention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you have strong programs mm-hmm. on both sides, it makes it a lot easier to maintain, you know, really optimal staff. Right, yeah. For, yeah, and, and it's becoming more pro. I mean, the less, when I was a director, I was the first at, at the at the, the children's hospital I was working at. I was the first director to hire a traveler. And I started there in 2015. So it was probably 2016, 2017. I hired a traveler there and they had a staff of 80 plus. Now they have several, right? So it's it just shows you how yeah. things are shifting. And, and it was starting before COVID, but COVID put an mm-hmm. emphasis on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think to your point, is there are a lot of opportunities uh, because of COVID and we have to be learning from them. So I just really appreciate you saying that. Like, don't miss it, right? Don't miss the lessons. Don't miss the learning of how we need to really change and shape into a new future. So really great point. Well, obviously from your introduction, you are a leader, Joel. So would you mind telling our listeners how you stepped into the leadership role and um, maybe some of your lessons along the way? Yeah, I think just like everybody else, you end up in leadership by absolute accident. <laughs> That's another one, you know, somebody taps you on the shoulder. What do you want to be when you're five? A leader. Oh, what's that even mean? Right. <laughs> so, so um, no, I, I, you know, I, in my time as a respiratory therapist, I never skipped the role. I, I worked every role. I was a staff therapist, charge therapist. I did research. I was a clinical specialist. I was an educator, manager, director senior director before I became a VP. And I think that path was me trying to figure out where I wanted to be. I kind of look at it as I had, I knew all the roles that were available and I was getting a taste of each one and figuring out which one really hit my heart. And uh, it was when I became an educator, I realized that it was uh, the leadership side. Mm -hmm. And it was for two reasons. Number one, as I was working, I I loved being a clinician and I I really loved it. And then eventually it felt, started feeling a little repetitive. And also I felt like I was limited to how many people I could touch because I wanted to be able to like see and have some part of everything. And it was probably at that point when I was a clinical specialist, I started having students and have new, new employees. And I started feeling this pride of seeing a student or a new employee that I worked with do really, really well. And in the background, know that I had something to do with that. Probably more than, like if someone came to me and said, Joel, you did a great job. I'd go, I'd just say that. But if they said, man, did you see so-and-so? And I knew in the back of my mind, I oriented them or taught them how to do it. Oh, it was the best feeling in the world. And so that's when I became an educator and I started doing it more. And I started realizing like, I like it, but it was limited. They, I would, 
see them as it, when they were in orientation, then they would leave. And then I would, I couldn't continue to be part of them unless they really, really connected with me. And that's when I went into the manager role and I just loved it. I loved every moment of it. I loved watching people grow, watching them become better leaders. I loved the fact that it wasn't as concrete as the clinical, for me, although the clinical world is always evidence-based medicine, right? Leadership, mm -hmm. your path is continuous. Um, thus, the, when you see the name of my business arrive, leadership, I, it's called that because I believe you arrived when you realize that the journey is continuous. When you mm -hmm. think you're, yep. that's when you arrive. If you find someone who's like, oh, I'm, I'm there as a leader. I, every, I know everything I need to know. They have not <laughs> arrived. You arrive when you realize like you're at your infancy. You're a neophyte when it comes to that. And it's going to go on from until you, to you, to the day you die. Um, and so the, <laughs> each time I just kept getting, you know, these roles with, and the more people that I could have an impact on, the better I felt about it. Um, so, and, and, and my, and to this day, my most proud accomplishment is that every role that I left as I got promoted um, was filled by someone I mentored. Mm. Oh, yeah, that's like cool. Everyone. So when yeah. I was an educator, it was filled by someone I mentored. When I became a manager, it was men filled by someone I mentored. I became a director, it was filled by someone I mentored. And now I'm a VP and they're still trying to fill it out. But I know that there's some folks that I mentored that are going to be applying and will be <laughs> the most appropriate person for. So that just fills me with, I mean, you, there's, you, you have finance and you have all the things, but then it's like, what makes you wake up in the morning? And what makes me wake up in the morning seeing, is seeing people do well. And then maybe I just had a little bit to do with it and I can be in the yeah. background quiet and just yeah. watch them do well. Yeah. 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 Wow. What, awesome. what a legacy. <laughs> yeah. you know, that's, well, you were that's doing a succession planning. <laughs> I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm big. I love I, that. I love that. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that, right? So now I'm doing executive coaching and, uh, you know, I have my own business and, you know, I went to my team and I said, all right, these six people are folks that I've been mentoring forever. Um, and I know it's a business now, but they will be working with me for free because this I, I'm doing this business because it's what I love, and since it's what I love, I want to continue to connect with the people that I've already connected with. So, um, yeah, I, that, it really excites me. It, it's, it's what drives me. Great, that's awesome. That's awesome. Well, we understand that you also did a TEDx talk. Yeah. So we were uh, we were hoping you could tell our listeners a little bit about that experience uh, and yeah. what you talked about. Yeah, so the TEDx talk experience is, is very interesting. So I actually was doing a lecture for us. So I'm the vice chair of a group called Leadership Delaware. Um, and uh, I, I actually went through this program. It's an advanced leadership program. Um, it's really great. It kind of focuses on Delaware. It was started by Governor Pete DuPont and Terry Strine. And, um, you know, and uh, we just, we, it's a great program. So I went there to do a, do a lecture and it was my what's next for you lecture. And this is a one-hour lecture that talks about uh, from soup to nuts, a little bit about me, about my background growing up in West Philly, you know, to like the military. And then like, how did I get here from a kid growing up in a pretty rough neighborhood in Philadelphia? Well, someone from that, someone uh, it, that's connected with Leadership Delaware was also connected with um, TED Talks, saw my lecture, said, and reached out to them. And then they reached out to me saying, hey, we want you to do a TED Talk. I was like, great, which one? What's next week? Oh, I love that one. And like, by the way, it should be between eight to 18 minutes. 
what? It's a one hour lecture. <laughs> How do I do this? How do I do this? But so that I think so that experience of that, you know, was was uh, interesting taking all something that's a philosophy of yours and moving it down to just being uh, it ended up being 12 minutes. Um, it, so for those who've never done TED Talks, it's a one shot. There's no editing. Um, and so and I don't I don't write down my lectures. I don't have scripts. I usually, you know, memorize the majority of it and then kind of go with it. So that that part, it went well. Um, I enjoyed the experience, but man, it's probably one of the scariest moments of my career. Um, <laughs> what the lecture is about is um, what's next for you is about like setting goals and then figuring out how to achieve them. And when often when people hear what's next for you, they think you're talking about where do you want to be at the end point, right? And, and in my mind, if you only focus on the end point, there's so many steps that are in between there and you can lose your steam. So what's next for you is truly what's the next step you need to get to have to do to get there so you can get there, you can celebrate it, you can, you know, pat yourself on the back, take a deep breath and then find the next part. So I use the example of building a castle out of building blocks or Legos. And I, the example is that when you look at the picture on there and you see what you want, you go, this is great. You open it up and it's a million pieces. And sometimes seeing those million pieces to your career, the things you have to do, I got to get a degree, I need experience here, then I need another degree and I got to, right? That could get frustrating. But the first thing you do is you look for the instructions in the box, which will tell you how to do it. And that's, you know, by, if you want to do something, you want to be a COO, I often use like a LinkedIn and I'll go and find CEO, COO's resumes and it'll tell you exactly what, or find the job that they're searching. It'll tell you what you need to be there. Then I talk about the next step after that is that you need someone, you need a mentor. Um, mm -hmm. When you're a kid and you open up that box and you're frustrated and there's so many pieces, having a friend or a parent that can give you a hand to help you figure it out is important. So same thing for your career. You need mentors to show you how to get there. And then the last part of it is it's not going to put itself together by itself. You have to do the work. So you have to get there, roll up your sleeves, do the work. And then the last part of it, which I think is the most important part, you'll finish it. And guess what? You may say, you know what? I, I want more. That doesn't mean you have to knock down the entire building block. You, you can use those same blocks to build another castle. So that's why I talk about with my career going from a medic to being a respiratory to being a operational VP in the medical group. I used the same pieces. I didn't throw away the pieces from my from my castles from before. So that's that's the short version of my what's next for you lecture. <laughs> 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 there you go. In less than five minutes. Yeah. See, you can, man, you're getting better and better at this all along, Joel. <laughs> oh, I love yeah. it. I love it. Such a great analogy. Thank you for sharing that. That's Thank awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think too, it's, um, it's the experiences, right? Yes. That, that you have along the way. So it, you can leverage, you can always leverage the experiences that you've had in whatever the next step is for you. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. 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 So anyway, we understand that, um, congratulations is an order that you have just accepted entrance into a PhD program. And so we wondered, you know, how is this going to support what's next for you? Yeah. Well, first of all, I know many of you are out there thinking, what is he thinking? 
because <laughs> it is not an easy path. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because I'm I'm at the point in my career now. I started my new business because I'm in what I, some would call like a semi-retirement. Um, I uh, you know so I started my own business and my business is just doing the things that I love, which is also part of an arrivement. Is what we call it. Um, is that you start focusing on just doing the things you love, and if you just happen to get paid for it, then that's that can't get better. Um, but I've always, always wanted to get to, um, to, to have a PhD, to, to max out the, you know, have a terminal degree, um, even though I know that learning continues. And so it's just, it's just for multiple reasons. Um, so for, I may have not said it in this, you know, podcast, but I grew up in a really, um, really rough neighborhood, humble, humble beginnings. They called my neighborhood the bottom. For, for obvious, for multiple reasons. Um, when you watch the uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air and he says, West Philadelphia, born and raised, he grew up in the same neighborhood. My sister went to the same high school. So um, so his his story was very relatable, except there was no LA options for me. So, um, <laughs> so he still stay there. But, you know, I, I recognize that, you know, being an example is, is super important, especially in, in my community. Um, like, I see someone who looks like me or comes from my neighborhood that can do that. And then even though that may not be the only reason why you do it, it does give you a nice boost. I know I can because he did. Mm-hmm. And if folks meet me and know me, like, you know, there's nothing that special. I'm not a, you know, not a genius, but I, but I work hard. So that's the first one part is it, it's just, I think, good for the community. For my own personal, um, it was something I always wanted to do. Um, Oh, I've had like uh, hurdles in the way, barriers in the way that when I did my planning, I said, that's something I'll do when I get to this point. And now I'm here. It is truly my what's next. And then last, you know, I really want to learn a little bit more. I, I, I am published. I've been published several times, but I want to learn more about how to do that. I want to try to, uh, my, my uh, PhD is going to be in organizational leadership. And a lot of the things we talked about earlier um, that have to do with COVID and gaps in leadership training and development. Um, I want to kind of dive into that a little bit more. Um, and then last but not least, um, I'm going to a HBCU. Um, for those who don't know what that means, it's a historically black college or university. Um, these are univer- There's a handful of them within the um, country. Um, so I've always wanted to go to an HBCU and get that experience um, to have the traditional um, education combined with the cultural part of, of being at a predominantly black school. So I'll be going to University of Maryland Eastern Shore um, for their organizational development PhD program. So um, pray for me is what I'm saying. <laughs> it's a lot of work. Well, yeah, I know. I'm just just finishing mine. So I, I'm with you. I'll be holding the torch for you and cheering you on. Let me tell you, it is so, a journey like none other. Yeah. So really what you're saying, Joel, is when Tracy finishes, I can take her off my prayer list and put you on it. Please write my name twice. <laughs> okay. <Yeah. laughs> uh, I have no doubt you'll be successful. No yeah. doubt. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we also know that you are the new chair of the leadership and management section of the American Association of Respiratory Therapists. And so tell us what you're most excited about that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I'm the chair elect of the American Association for Respiratory Care, the AARC. Um, I have been a member, and I'm not here representing the AARC 
I'm here representing Arrive Leadership, but I'm am proud of the assignment because it's a it's a uh, elected role. So my my colleagues chose you know me for this role, and and it's a you know honor to be able to serve um, other respiratory care professionals. Um, and and the ARC is not just respiratory therapists; it's it's respiratory therapists, right? Like I'm proud of that. So there's some pride around being a respiratory therapist. But we all and we also have. Um, uh, nurses and and physicians that are actively active members um so in my right now i'm the chair elect so i'm a non-voting member but i am looking forward to engaging okay. with other respiratory uh leaders um I'm, I'm looking forward to identifying gaps uh within our field that we can you know provide education i'm looking forward to learning uh from from our more senior and seasoned uh, and the wisdom that's available uh, by connecting with folks at that level, um, I'm looking forward to that. And more importantly, I'm looking to serve um, the community of respiratory care, uh, respiratory therapists um, that are, uh, you know, it's an international organization. So um, I've, I've been actively involved, but I'm looking forward to taking that next step. And uh, by you know, going into my arrivement or semi-retirement, it, it affords me the time to be able to to do it because I, I really don't like doing anything halfway. Um, so I'm, I'm looking forward to going full board and, and helping. Yeah. That's awesome. It is. Well, congratulations on that yeah. too. And uh, gosh, what a, what a gift to the association. So that's mm -hmm. awesome. Yeah. 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 It, you know, the, the, the one thing that we, you know, I will say is that, um, if, and I'm pretty hoping that that many RTs will be listening into this podcast. That is, if you're listening and you hear my voice and you're not a member, I highly recommend you become a member. And this is I'm speaking on the behalf of Joel Brown. Um, I can tell you that um, connection to a national organization for me, I, and I still say this, it charges my battery um, when I get to go to a national yeah. conference or get to be around other you know thought leaders. Um, it will recharge your battery. It'll do what I call connect to purpose. There's two connect to purpose. There's a, the one around our clinical one, and there's a professional one. Our clinical per connect to purpose we see every time when we walk out our offices and walk around our patients. I always use the example. I remember one time sitting there and I was really struggling with the budget. And then I walked out and I saw this kid pushing an IV pole with a shaved head that looked at me with a big smile on her face and said, good morning. And I was like, man. What am I complaining mm -hmm. about this budget for this kid? Right. That's a, that's a clinical connected purpose. But then there's the, like, you know, it's like, get yeah. you. Like, really? Like, you, you, this is, that budget is not the worst thing that ever happened to you. And then the professional connected purpose is when you get to, to engage with other leaders. Like, this for me today, like, this fills my tank. It's a battery recharge. And so um, connect with your uh, professional organizations. And um, I highly recommend the AARC. Yeah, that's great. And and I think the other thing that we're noticing now, too, that COVID is lighting up a little bit is people, conferences are coming back together. People are reconnecting. And for some people, they don't realize how much they miss that, right? It's just really powerful. Yeah. yeah. So totally get the connection piece there. Yeah, we, we've okay, been Joel, in a well, role. It's time for the missing. Oh. Uh, uh, go ahead. <laughs> I'm looking forward to this part. <laughs> Are you? <laughs> yes. You looking forward to our missing questions? <laughs> yes, I am. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, here's the first one. 
What is your favorite sport and why? Football. Oh, well, I guess favorite sport to watch or perform, <laughs> right? So it could be two. Fo- I'll do football for his favorite Answer sport. Answer both. To- yeah, football's favorite sport to watch. I'm a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. Um, I love watching the Eagles. I love they we were the underdog. We did win a Super Bowl eventually, but you know, I, that underdog feel always like I love the teamwork. I love the way, especially as someone who does who's really into huddles and developing huddles. I use football analogies often, meaning that the football team huddles and everyone needs to know what the game plan is, even if you're not the one carrying the ball. So the person that's the center and the lineman. They're just as important to being in that huddle as a person who's the running back and a quarterback. So I love that type of teamwork where everyone has a different goal, even though their role is different. So that's why I love football. Then from a other personal, um, I was always big into wrestling and, uh, and martial arts, which are more like contact sports, because although it's a team, it's a challenge to you um, to overcome, to persevere, right. and, and to... Um, both most of the martial arts I'm in are fairly like they call them gentle martial arts, which means you do protect yourself, but you can get someone to, to kind of submit before you have to really hurt them. Um, so it's also knowing your capabilities <laughs> and how how you can um, you know knowing your limits and building confidence in you that you don't have to engage. Um, meaning, if you're in a situation where someone really wants to you know physically attack you, that you can your confidence in knowing that you, that you can uh, protect yourself allows you not to engage. You know, so someone comes, Hey, uh, this is going to happen. Okay. That's fine. Right. Because I don't need to prove anything. I, I have confidence and know that I can protect myself. So one is around teamwork. One is around just self-control and uh, ability to, you know, work with your alone by yourself, even though you're within, you know, working amongst the team. That's awesome. That's an individual team polarity right there. <laughs> it is. That's a really a great analogy. I love it. <laughs> All right. Here's your second missing question, Joel. What has been the most influential book that you have read more than once? Hmm. Read more than once. Actually, the, the, the book on love languages. Um, oh, and, and yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my wife and I read it together. Um, not like, you know, we, we'd go, all right, chapter one this week. So it helped my, my personal relationship, but it really, when you talk about, um, leveraging separate realities, knowing how someone else wants to be connected with, um, that book is a great lesson in that. Like, so, you know, if someone's, uh, love language is being, you know, in their, you know, around them or their love language is gifts, right. It, it helped me realize that not only in your personal relationship, but as you're leading folks, not everybody wants to be recognized the same way. Everyone has a different love language. Everyone yeah. has a different way they want to be recognized. And the more personal you can take your your how you can take the way you recognize folks, the better off you are. And then it also helped me yep. you know, not try to show love the way I want to see it, the way I want to receive it, right? So some people's gifts and there's some people are doing things, you know, some people may be, you know, um, you know, again, being around and, you know, you have to figure out that just because I like, you know, recognition this way doesn't mean everyone does. So take your time, um, 
and mm-hmm. figure out each individual, see what they want. It's one of the best exercises I ask my staff to do, which is every time they meet with their folks, ask them, how do they like to be recognized? And in a way, to me, that's their professional love language. Sure. Yeah. Sure. So now we're curious, what's yours? I, I like um, to do things, service. So if I am showing service. love, I will, I will yeah. do things for you. I will put, I'll, you know, I'll put like with my wife, like I'll go put things together that she wants or she wants, you know, a new this, I will go get it and put it together and do all the work. Um, but what I, what I learned was that hers is just spending time. So while I was showing my love language, I may have not been reflecting hers. So then I just had to figure out how to balance yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, it's sure. a great book and it's not just from a personal side. I think there's a lot of, uh, a transition that can go into leadership except physical touch. Don't do that. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Keep that one out. Keep that one out. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of, um, there's a lot of applications, Yeah, a lot of applications for that book. Yeah. All right. Last question. Here we go, Joel. So, you know, we teach polarity intelligence and really just kind of how to think both and, and, um, and it's really just a principle about, you know, polarities and how things are interdependent. And sometimes we have a preference, uh, for one pole more than the other. That's a natural occurring thing, right? Like you have a, a preference for service. I mean, that's just a preference that you have, right? Something you've developed over time. So I'm going to ask you about a specific polarity and I want you to share what is your preference. Okay. So the polarity is optimism, optimism and realism. Which do you prefer? Man, I would probably say I am the optimist. Um, Even though I I recognize the reals, but I am the optimist. And, and, And I'll tell you why, right? My life is an example of optimism. Um, if you like, you know, I was raised by a single father. My mother passed when I was five, right? Um, I grew up in a rough neighborhood. I went, I joined the military during wartime. I, and now I am a, um, I am a CEO of my own business. If you're, that is optimism. If I just looked at what was real and in front of me alone and really leaned into that, I can't say I would be able to overcome that. And then my, my faith requires me to be an optimist, uh, you know, uh, as, as a Christian, right? We are, that's an optimism faith, right? There, there's a reality that's in the Bible, but then there's this, the faith of what's coming, you know, coming soon. And so I think the common, my, my life would show that I'm the optimist, but I do recognize the reality. But if I had to lean towards one, definitely the optimist. I can't tell you how many times that someone goes, I can't yeah. believe you're putting all that energy into so-and-so. Like, and I'm like, no, I think they really, really can do it. Um, and I just would rather be wrong. Yeah. Like put the energy into the optimist side and be wrong and let the reality tell me I'm wrong later than just not do it. So, yeah, it's a great question. I love that question. Well, that's a great example. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes you pause a little bit, right? Well, yeah. That's what I appreciate. It makes you pause and think. And, and, and the truth is we often recognize both. It's not that you don't recognize yeah. the other side and the significance of it. It's just that you tend to kind of lean that way, right? Yeah. And it's just good to know that because sometimes then you have blind spots on the other pole because you don't 
you're not, it's not your preference, right? So you don't as readily recognize all the benefits of that poll as you might for the other right. way you tend to prefer. Yeah. So anyway, you know, that's just, yeah, the interesting just thing the reality is, is, of it. <laughs> yeah. The interesting thing is even like in, in a world of research, which is very reality based, right? Um, anytime I've done a paper or read a paper, the most of the papers that I've written myself or uh, that I've come up with the research idea was based off the optimism. Like I would hear about a study or see something we're doing. And I'm like, I bet we could do better than that. Right. That's a researcher's mind. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's like kind of based in reality, yeah, sure. but you got to have a lot of optimism to jump out and do a paper that you could probably spend six months to a year of your time and find out it's going to be nothing. <laughs> it takes some optimism mm-hmm. for that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sure it does. Sure it does. That's yeah. awesome. Oh, what a great interview. Thank you so much, Joel, for sharing your stories and your expertise. And um, I just learned so much uh, about just how leadership is. You don't have to even have it all figured out in the beginning, but I loved how the castle story and just you just follow that path and keep it going. I can't wait to see where you're going to be five years from now. (laughs) Hopefully yeah, done the PhD, PhD program. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully done the PhD program. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Thank you for being our first respiratory therapist on the show. And just to sharing, you know, I think some insights mm-hmm. around respiratory therapy and leaders in respiratory therapy and all the different avenues that you've taken. And, you know, I just think it, it's uh, heartwarming for me, for others <clears throat> excuse me, to get some insight into leadership from a respiratory therapy perspective. And I just really appreciate you bringing that and all your lessons learned and wisdom. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for the yes. invite. Um, I, I enjoy the podcast. I'm hoping that everyone out there listening, is, you know, got to hear something that may be inspiring. And uh, for those who are, you know, respiratory therapists, nurses, physicians, anyone that's there out there clinically know that the community appreciates you and uh, we're, we're, we're all proud of each other, but definitely take a moment, pat yourself on the back, take a deep breath um, because we've been through a lot. It's a once in every hundred year event that we were at the light at the end of the tunnel for. So um, I appreciate you all. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. And for all of our listeners out there, this is a wrap for another awesome Healthcare is Missing Logic podcast, and we'll see you on the next one. Thank you. Stay healthy, stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Healthcare is Missing Logic podcast, now a top-rated podcast for healthcare leaders. Please share this podcast with other healthcare leaders and anyone else you think would benefit. We are certain that if you found value in it, they will too. If you haven't already done so, please hit that subscribe button so you don't miss any episodes. And also, it would mean the world to us if you took a quick moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast player. It helps to get the word out about our podcast and incredible guests. Be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel if you want to watch our podcasts. You can also follow us on our Missing Logic social media channels, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Until next time.